And so, all right, that kind of leads us into today we're talking about the gifts that Jesus gave us. And as and we, if you'll jump down in the outline to Roman numeral 5, letter A, getting oriented, we, all of those verses that are under getting oriented were included in the scripture readings today intentionally. I'm just going to remind us that last week we ended with talking about Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, where it says that Christ gave gifts to men. So an erroneous, there's an erroneous teaching out there that talks about how the Lord reigns over his church and his kingdom, but it doesn't look at Christ reigning over all those outside of his church and his kingdom. But Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And, uh, you know, Nathan had to help me with this because it was such, so deep, but I studied the Greek word pan, which means all, and the more I looked at it and read uh, long articles from a thesaurus, the more I discovered that all means all. <laughs> That's deep, isn't it? Um, so um, the truth is Jesus is Lord over your nose hairs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's really, he's, there's nothing that happens to you. You know, uh, I, a preacher that I liked a lot named Charles Simpson used to say he believed in the sovereignty of God so much that when he fell down the steps, he just said, I thank God that that's over with. <laughs> you know, so, and, uh, you know, because he believed in predestination, of course. And uh, so, um, the truth of the matter is, nothing touches your life. I always say you will, you will crash in the Christian life if you don't maintain these three principles at all times. One, God is sovereign. He predestines all things. So that means nothing touches your life by accident. You didn't get that boss by accident. You didn't choose to major in engineering and then later say, maybe I should have ma majored in something else by, by accident. You know, people always, a lot of times people will uh, re-guess, should I have majored in this or that in college? Well, God was sovereign enough and providential enough that if he wanted to, he could have showed you that in time. And even your rebellious mistakes were ordained by God, not that he's culpable or, or accountable for them, but he knew where you'd be, and he even redeems those for his sanctifying purposes. For in, for in some way, sometimes he lets you eat such bad fruit from your decisions that you won't go there again. Right? Anybody ever ate bad fruit from some decisions? Don't. No, we, probably, <laughs> we don't need a show of hands on that one. Because you don't have enough hands, but uh, <laughs> neither do I. So, um, so um, number one, God, nothing touches your life that God hasn't ordained. Two, um, remember that He loves you, and so actually, nothing touches your life that God doesn't intend to use for good. Some of my worst failures in life, of which I have majored in that, I'm, you know, I have a doctorate in the school of failure, and um, 
My dissertation was way too long. But uh, <laughs> um, so uh, even your failures are redeemed by God for his great redeeming glorious purposes. As Paul argues, though, in Romans, not in such a way. Some people erroneously uh, said that when Paul taught such things, that he was arguing we should go ahead and do evil so good may come about. He, and he says that he's never arguing that. That's some of the gist of the argument in Romans chapters 2, 3, and 4. So, um, lastly, God is able. So we struggle with doubts about could God do this or that. He could do whatever he wants. You know, he can raise the dead and he can leave the dead dead. He can do whatever he wants. And so if you don't maintain those three principles when you're going through tough times, you'll get confused in your Christian walk. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So God gave you that uh, husband. God gave you that kid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had one son. Uh, my son Victor was a little bit ornery. And I used to always think, think of when my mother would always say, someday I hope you have a son just like you. <laughs> and I said, God answered her prayer. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and uh, I needed a son just like that. And of course, he's been a great blessing to us. So, um, so never forget those three principles. God's in, nothing touches your life that isn't ordained of God. He loves you, so nothing. He doesn't do anything out of meanness, or you're not getting judged or disciplined. In, in the, I mean, you are getting disciplined or chastised sometimes, but not in uh, for anything but the, you know, His love for you and His love to have you sanctified. Some day, times He's letting you eat bad fruit, so you won't eat it there again. And lastly, he's able to bring about his good purposes, no matter how amazing they might seem. All right, so all that's no extra charge. Freebie. All right, so uh, again, Ephesians 4, the thing I want to emphasize is that Christ didn't give these gifts just to the church but he gave them to the whole world. You know, apostles, prophets, helps, administrations, all these gifts. We're going to look at the sevenfold ministry uh, of Christ in the order that most people experience it in their life rather than the order that it's listed. So normally apostles are listed before prophets and evangelists. There's reasons for that because all prophets and evangelists should be under apostolic authority. Uh, but, um, but normally, we experience the gifts of helps first, 
than administrations, and you grow. That's why it says earnestly desire the greater gifts. When you're faithful to serve God in the gifts he gives you, one of the outcomes of that is he gives you more gifts. You know, I was uh, delayed today. I'd forgotten to polish my shoes and get certain logistic things done that usually get done during the week, and so I was late to the prayer meeting. Uh, still plenty of time for Catherine's uh, sermon, which you started about 9.26 today. She started three or four minutes early, but uh, which, which caught me off guard because I'm such a old, old people can't handle any change. Uh, so anyway, um, but one of the reasons I hate missing the early prayer meeting is not only that there's a good eight or 10 or 12 people that are pretty faithful to be at that early prayer meeting, but John Luke always does such a faithful job of getting himself prepared for it. And I don't know if he picks out the songs the night before. Probably you do, right? No, nope, that morning. But, uh, but he's, always, he's always well prepared, you can tell. And it's always a delight to have him lead us in worship. So let's get into this. We won't reread the scriptures there, but uh, if you're not familiar with them, skim them really quick and flip over to the second page where it says the seven service gifts. Now, hopefully you know that in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4, 5, and 6, uh, Paul lists three categories of gifts, and this is very important. One of the things that is we're living in a time where I think the predominant, according to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, there are principalities and powers that is specific types of spiritual forces of wickedness over various geographical areas. There are certain kinds of demonic powers over families, uh, often neighborhoods, cities, and so forth. I believe that the predominant spirit over American Christianity is a spirit of religious confusion. And that spirit has been so successful in dividing and confusing most of the different expressions of Christianity since, uh, since the 1700s that we've exported that religious confusion to the, to the whole world so that we live in a time of worldwide religious confusion. And uh, this affects every religion and the, and the people that think of themselves as not, that's a confused idea. There's, some, there's actually secular humanistic people who think they're not religious or irreligious, but secular humanism is a full religion. Every person was made in the image of God, and every person has answers in their heart and their mind about who or what is ultimately real, which is a religious question. And every person is religious, and every person worships. Some people worship their Corvette or uh, what have you, or their bank account, or sex, or alcohol, or drugs, but every person is a worshiper. Okay, so that's important to understand. And um, in our religious confused time period, one of the areas among many of great confusion is the idea of gifts. 
And so you'll hear people say, well, Adam has the gift of being an evangelist, and Nathan has the gift of being a pastor, and Caleb has the gift of love. And Greg just goes, hello, loves. But no, that, that used to be, there, there used to be a commercial like that in Toledo that we like to make fun of. But that statement is utterly absurd confusion. Love is not a gift at all. It's a commandment. And it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you can't, uh, if, if love was not a commandment and a fruit of the Holy Spirit, we could actually just get away with not being very loving and just say, well, Christ hasn't given me the gift of love. <laughs> I, I, I'm just a gift of being old and crusty. <laughs> so, uh, you know... Uh, so you hear that kind of stuff all the time. So it's important to understand uh, the New Testament talks about gifts in two different ways. First of all, all good things are a gift from God. As John Gray pointed out today, uh, you know, uh, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Your very life is a gift. So being drawn to Christ is a gift. Every person has within them a sin nature that is avoiding becoming a Christian. And if you became a Christian, it's because, you know, Luther's great classic work, the, probably the most important work of the Reformation, was called The Bondage of the Will, in which he basically states that everyone's will is bound to resist God, run from God, hate God, and so forth. And God intervenes by his grace and causes us to be willing to believe. He doesn't make us choose him in the sense that he makes us. He makes us willing to be willing to choose him. And so salvation is a gift. Life is a gift. And, and your talents are a gift. Et cetera, et cetera. So in one sense, the, the, the prevailing attitude out there that everything is a gift is correct if you're talking about things like life. However, when the New Testament talks about gifts in, in specific ways, it, it, there are three categories of gifts. And they are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. And each one of them is related to a different person of the Trinity. So there's one kind of gift called the gifts of um, temperament or the gifts of motivation that are given to you by God the Father in the way you were created. And those gifts are listed by Paul in Romans chapter 12, 3 through 9. And so those gifts, and those gifts have a way of determining how you see the world. Now, because you are, you have, uh, most people have a little bit of all seven of those gifts, but most people will have one or so that is their most prominent one. And sometimes people will have two or three that are their most prominent ones. So mathematically, it's an infinite number of possibilities how they're put together. That's why everyone is completely unique. 
But those gifts determine how you view the same situations. Years ago, I was in a car accident where an old man ran a red light and turned out to be a very difficult thing to be because he died from the accident. And that was not my fault. But one of the blessings that came out of it was that uh, uh, people who were standing on each of the four corners of Monument in Maine without anyone asking them, stayed and, to, and, and all gave statements. Of, like a dozen different people told the, the police that the man ran, ran the red light and that I was not speeding. There was nothing I could have done. Nevertheless, it was very difficult. And it, uh, I uh, didn't think like the family would be too happy to see me at the hospital, so... Even though I was a pastor, I, sent, I uh, called the hospital, asked, uh, asked for the chaplain, and asked the chaplain if he would go see the man, because the man lived two days before he died. And at his funeral, uh, I met, uh, I had already met the wife, uh, and of course he was 81 years old, she was about 80, and so his children were in their late 40s, as was I at the time. Uh, and what was interesting, that uh, his son... And his daughter heard the same facts and had two completely different reactions. The daughter glared at me with great anger and refused to say hello to me or anything like that. While the son was a big burly guy with a big fat beard and he came over and hugged me like I was the long last lumberjack friend that he hadn't seen in, in uh, a long time and, and you know made me feel very welcome. And, and he said, we know there was nothing you could have done. And my, his, he's, you know, the, the, the wife, his wife and, and the son said, you know, our father refused to wear seatbelts. And frankly, it would have been a fairly modern act, fair, fairly medi mediocre or whatever, uh, not, not severe accident had he had a seatbelt on. He died because he flew across the car and hit his head on the window because he had no seatbelt, even though I was only going about 20 when I hit him. But he hit the window hard enough that they couldn't stop the bleeding on his brain, and he died two days later. And he would have been kind of sore from being jostled uh, had he been wearing a seatbelt, but he wouldn't have been harmed otherwise. Not that I'm trying to do a commercial for seatbelts, but anyone who doesn't wear a seatbelt is a fool. Um, you can have that point, no extra charge. Um, so, um, but interesting... It's interesting that they, the, these two children of his who were in their 40s heard the exact same facts and had completely different reactions to the facts. And that happens all the time. So the seven gifts of motivation, uh, you know, I always use an illustration of a little boy running across the fellowship hall like Samuel Hager, hi Samuel, and dropping a glass of water and here's how the seven motivational gifts work. Uh, a, a person with the gift of service will immediately sweep up the glass, clean up the water, and make everything right again. With, and no one will have to ask them. A person with the gift of compassion, like John Gray, will hug the little boy and tell him it's no use crying over a glass of water. They're, you know, they cost 19 cents at Walmart. And, it's no big deal, and you're, it'll be okay, and so forth. A person with the gift of teaching 
would explain to the kid to listen to his five-part series on how to hold a glass with two hands and to make sure your hands are dry first. And I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point. But, uh, and, you know, and to, you know, listen to this series of teachings and get back to me by next week. And, <laughs> you know, uh, a person with the gift of exhortation, like also John Gray, will tell, get the boy another little a glass of water and say, come on now, let's do this. You can, do, you can carry the glass of water without breaking it. I, I know that you can do it. You know, and uh, you, you, were, you were made for this. You know? <laughs> it's your destiny to be a great carrier of little glasses of water across the fellowship hall. And uh, uh, so forth. Uh, a, girl, a, a person with the gift of administration will tell the servant guy, uh, he'll know who is which ones, and so he'll get the servant person to uh, clean up while he'll get the comfort person to comfort the little boy, uh, you know, on and on and on. There's a gift called giving. People with the gift of giving usually have an ability to make a lot of money. And they usually think money solves a lot of problems, which... By the way, it does. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the person that with the gift of giving will just take it upon themselves. Like, I always hated that we have these hodgepodge of glasses that don't even match anyway. Because a lot of churches have that, right? You know, because everyone donated them from their garage sale or whatever. And their grandmother and all that sort of thing. And so... They'll just go out to, you know, Walmart and get three or four cases of glass that all match and get rid of all the cruddy ones that don't match. And th then all the glasses will look nice in the fellowship hall because they all match. And, uh, and the person that has the gift of giving will think, like, why didn't we get around to doing that two years ago? <laughs> the person, again, with the gift of administration will... Ask the person with the gift of giving to go give us, go buy us new glasses while they have the service guy sweep up, while they have the comfort guy hug the little kid and tell him it's okay. And they'll have the teaching guy explain to the kid how to carry the water better in the future and so forth. And so, who was right? Everyone, right? So it's important to understand that because that's actually the source of a lot of our conflicts. Because we see the same uh, things and we interpret them completely different because our God the Father has created us with different gifts of motivation. And the Greek word in 1 Corinthians 12 is energemitas, which we get energy from or motivation and then the, the, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are called charismatas, and they're the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we don't need to review here, because we're already, by the time I get up here, it's already too late, and then I also comment on the scripture readings, which takes me too late. And uh, a lot of you wish that our meetings weren't so long, but it's worth it. You're getting good stuff. Like, you should know all this stuff. And it should be, like, if you don't see why knowing about motivational gifts, mo knowing about motivational gifts will save your marriage, it'll save your relationship with the body of Christ. It'll help you have much more grace 
for people seeing and doing things different. Does that make sense? So, lastly, the, the gifts of service in 1 Corinthians 12, the Greek word is diakonai, which we get deacon from, and it means a table waiter. So these seven gifts that we're about to talk about, and I'm going to get through two or three of them today despite the time so that we're making some progress. They are gifts from Christ. And Christ, this is very important to understand, Christ is the perfect mix of all seven gifts of temperament or motivation, and he is the perfect mix of all seven gifts of, of service or leadership. Now, you will normally hear in today's contemporary Christianity, you will normally hear uh, them called the five-fold ministry or five-fold leadership gifts because they're only using the list in Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. However, if you combine it with the list from 1 Corinthians 12, I always add helps and administrations, and that's why I call them the seven. Now, helps is a, a gift that everyone should start with. When you first become a Christian, it should become your desire to serve because the greatest aspect of Christ is to serve. Jesus came not to take, but to give his life as a ransom for many, and he came to serve and not be served. That's why in John's account of the Last Supper, which is contained in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, the first thing Jesus does is he, he takes off his robe, girds himself with a towel, and begins to wash and, and dry the, the apostles' feet. Feet, not feet. <laughs> Uh, they did many feats. No. Um, and if you remember, Peter says, Lord, you can't wash me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. That's huge. Huge. So many people don't submit to a process of letting Jesus, and by the way, Jesus does everything that he does for the most part, not just directly by the Holy Spirit, although he does work that way, but he does it through the body of Christ. And so sometimes, it, uh, you know, John Luke O'Gayan will be washing your feet, not necessarily literally, but he might be the person God uses to help you with that. You know... Um, John Gray sent me a text yesterday admonishing me about the way I had texted somebody. <laughs> and uh, so he, he was washing my feet. Which stinketh in the King James. <laughs> so, uh, and then Jesus proceeds to say, you call me teacher and Lord 
and he doesn't go, he's not what I call a humble bumble, so he doesn't go, and shucks, guys, I really am, that's, you're giving me too much credit. He says, so I am. You call me teacher and Lord, and you got it right. <laughs> and then he goes, I did this as an example. If I washed your feet, so you should wash one another's. Now, we sometimes don't give enough thought to where things are, but he says this just before, before he says, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit out on you. And the gist of John 14, 15, and 16 is you're going to continue my ministry and my mission, and I'm going to give you the most awesome power that exists in the whole universe, the parakletos, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And woe is you if you have the power of the Holy Spirit and your heart isn't to serve one another and be a table waiter and be a servant. So much of what goes on in, in, the, in Holy Spirit circles, especially in the TV versions of Christianity, have a lot of glory around the person with the gifts. The exact opposite of what Jesus intended. Did everybody hear that? In other words, you, there's an order to things. Like, you better get this humble servant's heart before you get the power or it's going to kill you. It's going to really mess you up. And so the very first thing that you should have a will to do when you've become a Christian is sweep the church floor, do the church dishes, take out the trash, babysit, mow a lawn that's not yours. And uh, one of the things that I'm so thankful for is I've not been a church hopper, but because I've been a church planner, I guess Catherine and I have been a part of around seven or so churches since uh, we got uh, came to Christ in the same church back in the early 70s. And I've never been in a church where my first job wasn't taking out the trash. In fact, that's the thing I'm best at. <laughs> I'm really good at taking out the trash. And I didn't know, but a lot of what counseling and ministry is all about is taking out the trash. <laughs> so, um, helps, let's... Um, some things that you should know about helps. Um, the Greek word antilimpus, lampus probably, one who aids, perhaps would accompany the motivational gift of service, often attains to a certain level of authority. Paul actually talks about those who serve as deacons. Sometimes when people have the gift of helps, especially when it's uh, when it grows into the gift of administrations, uh, that that person ends up becoming officially recognized as a deacon or deaconess sometimes. Whether that happens or not, uh, 
A, Paul actually tells us that those who serve that way attain a great standing in the faith. And honestly, I believe the secret to, to uh, I've been granted by God to be fruitful. There's been periods of my life that there were lots of miraculous events, healings, deliverances, and so forth. We've gone through a few periods like that. We, uh, last Sunday, we had an amazing meeting praying for two young men to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, a lot of that gets down to, you know, my, my great career started out with, I was the guy that hung up the posters. Back in, now we have to hand out flyers because you're not allowed to hang up posters at most campuses. But back in the, in the good old days, you could put them in the stalls of bathrooms, you could put them on walls, you could put posters everywhere. And we did. <laughs> and I was the poster hanging up guy. And I was the babysitting guy. And I was the lawn mowing guy. Um, when, when I first was asking Catherine to come on board with the campus ministry and, and, and help me disciple the young ladies, um, I asked her to accompany me to my pastor's house because I was spending an evening there babysitting. And I figured... While I'm babysitting, I'll talk to her about, uh, you know, about uh, her role, you know, what if she comes on board the campus ministry, what that's going to look like, right? You remember that? At McCullough's house. Remember? So uh, I can remember um, I was babysitting for this couple named Roger and Sue Ely, and I was running a little late, and I was driving down Church Street a little too fast because I was late. And uh, a cop saw me, and he decided to pull me over, and I decided I was close enough to their house to, instead of pulling right over, just to lead the cop to their house. <laughs> so I pulled in the, the driveway, and they're looking out the window at, at a police car pulling the driveway right behind me, and I go, just as soon as I get this ticket, I'll be right in. <laughs> so, and, uh, uh, so, you know, you get wonderful experiences uh, doing these things. Uh, you know, I once had a pastor at an old house, and he had uh, he got some bats in the house, and so guess who they called? And uh, I guess I became Batman for a <laughs> brief time. And I learned that uh, ping pong, or no, uh, tennis rackets and badminton rackets are great for getting bats. <laughs> you get a lot of bounce out of them. <laughs> And then once they're, once they're pinned against the wall, if you push on their little bellies, their mouth goes like this. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that's how I first started having bats in my belfry. But, um, but uh, on a serious point, I want to I tell you something. I have had God speak to me in almost an audible way. It was so clear only a handful of times in my life. I think there, there are actually Christian ministries who have a rule that you can't say God told me or God said to me. Uh, and frankly, uh, we have impressions from the Holy Spirit. There's only a rare occasion where God told me.
1980, when I was uh, 23 years old, and I think I was still working, I was still working on my master's degree, and I had been asked by the elders of the church to start a campus ministry, and it was going terribly. And there were a number of reasons why it was going terribly, but I was desperate for God to speak to us and give us a breakthrough. And I will never forget this experience. But I uh, had a bad flu. My temperature was 102. I was sore all over, and I was uh, excreting certain things in a form called vomit, and uh, I was very sick. But it was Tuesday night, and Tuesday night was trash night. And it was about four or five below zero, and I lived about a mile from my pastor's house, and I didn't have a car back in those days. And so uh, while I was walking to the pastor's house, which I probably should have probably just called and said I can't do it this week, but, uh, but I always was pretty nutty about being dedicated to various things, so I, I did it. But I was crying out to God, like, what is the problem? You know, we uh, had been doing the campus ministry a year and a half. We had 14 people attending our meetings, none of which went exclusively to our Christian group. All of them were going to two or three Christian groups. In other words, we hadn't won the heart of any of them to our vision. None of them had had their life changed by us. And... uh, you know, we just hadn't even got started. Now there were, and uh, I'm, I'm asking God. Now, believe, understand this: that I had been casting demons out for about seven years at this point. I'd been helping people get baptized in the Spirit for at least that long. Um, I had been used of God uh, in miraculous ways a n- number of times, but as I spoke to God. Um, what is uh, what happened was he spoke to me and, and said this phrase the key is the Holy Spirit again I was more charismatic at that point than 90% of us in this room are but when God spoke that to me Within seconds, my mind, because God can work with a mind full of Scripture a lot easier than he can work if you don't know Scripture. Within the seconds, my mind had processed what we now call chapter 1 of the Holy Spirit series called the Ministry of the Holy Spirit and chapter 2 of the Holy Spirit series called the Activities of the Holy Spirit. All of that came to me within a matter of a few seconds because I knew all those verses so well. And all of a sudden, I realized what we need here is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I had been, this is also, this is an important lesson. So if, you know, we're probably not going to get any further than just introducing that there's helps. But um, I was a man under authority. And when the elders had asked me to start a campus ministry, they had asked another guy who I won't name to do it with me. 
And he was a junior or senior, and I was a grad student, but we were friends. And uh, he had actually started a high school ministry that had in, in Cleveland area that had been very successful, so he was sort of a natural choice. But from day one, we had argued about the Holy Spirit. He wanted to not have people clap during the worship or lift hands or do anything that might be a little scary in terms of appearing committed or radical to new people. I wanted to stir up the Holy Spirit, clap, lift our hands, sing in tongues, speak in tongues, etc. But because I believe in being under authority, I wasn't about to do any of that without his blessing and permission. Does everybody hear that? If we could only learn to operate like this and trust that God is sovereign. And so that had, God had sovereignly allowed that to, to proceed into a year and a half of no fruit and just total frustration. And he could see that. And so I immediately went to this guy and I explained to him the experience I had while taking out the trash on a four below zero night and rolling the wheelies out to the street and all that. And um, I said, would you do me this favor? Would you let me behind the scenes, give me the green light to tell all the people that are come on the fringes of our group about the Holy Spirit and about getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And let's see what God will do. And so he said, okay. Within within two weeks, all 14 of them were baptized in the Holy Spirit and on fire for God. Of course, I had a lot more energy, that, you know, and that takes hours of Bible studies with each person one-on-one, of which I went to the, started doing immediately. I approached every one of them and said, will you study with the, me about the Holy Spirit? And took them through all the scriptures. We didn't have any Holy Spirit outlines or anything at that time. They all got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then God spoke to me and said, you know, I've called you to be the head leader and, and, and he should just be on your team. Which, you know, like, how do you tell, say that to somebody? <laughs> like, I'm asking you to take a demotion. So I submitted that to him first. I didn't go around him to the elders. Uh, then we submitted it to the elders. Uh, he agreed, all the elders agreed, and we made the switch that I was the head and I developed a leadership team of which he was one of five uh, guys that helped me. Two years later, 70 people had been born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, delivered from demons, and were on fire for God. And it had changed the entire church that we were part of because all of a sudden there were all these on fire young Christians that were kind of reminding the, the old curmudgeons uh, that were now, you know, because we had been born out of a move of the Holy Spirit from 1970 to 1975. Now it was 1980, and most of these uh, original people were married, had little kids, and, 
You know, one of the things that there's lots of articles you can find out about, the re- one of the reasons I admire John and Leah Gray so much, and the Hagers, is because in most of America today, people use the fact that they have little kids as their excuse for not doing much with the Lord. And most kids, actually, most people today are on fire for the Lord until they have a, a couple kids. Then they put God on hold until their kids are grown up. That's how almost all American Christians do it today. And uh, that's a big mistake. If your kids don't see you serving God radically, they will grow up to, to basically, they get the message very, very thoroughly that you don't really believe this. When they see you making all kinds of sacrifices, not only financial, but in terms of your time and having people in your home and ministering to the hurting and and uh, all that kind of stuff, then they realize where your commitments are, and they grow up to follow the Lord. But, I, you know, I share all that story to, to talk about helps. The number one spiritual experience that I ever had was late at night in January when it was four below zero, and I had such a bad fever that I probably shouldn't have been walking over to my pastor's house to take out the trash. But it was while I was doing that that God spoke to me. And it changed. You all wouldn't be sitting here today if if that hadn't happened. Because present faithfulness is always the stepping stone to future usefulness. Did you hear that? Present faithfulness is always the stepping stone to future usefulness. So many people say, I'll get committed to a church, I'll serve God, I'll obey God once I get this and, you know, once I have the proper bride or once I have this or that. You know, being faithful in little things is the key to being faithful in much. When you're, when you're radically serving God, God will bring you who you need to serve God. When I got involved with Catherine, we'd been friends seven years. I wasn't looking for a wife. I was looking for someone to help me disciple pretty girls. Right? In my first year's relationship with Catherine, I mean, we'd been friends seven years, but my first, we mostly interacted about evangelism, casting out demons, discipling, and so forth. And she led a house of five single ladies and out of that house, in my house, because whenever someone got married, of course, they would move out and, and move into a little apartment together. Out of those two houses came seven weddings in the first two years we had them, even though there was only five people in the house at a time. That's how, that's how quick the turnover. It was almost like people were trying to get in those houses because it was a stepping stone to getting married. <laughs> But it really wasn't. It was just about like when you're putting God first radically, that's when God starts bringing you the the people that you need to put God radically with. And that will often include a spouse, among other things. So, helps. Luke 16, 10 through 12. Nathan Hager can remember me preaching these verses to him. So can Sam Awante. So can half of you, especially the guys. Uh, when we were walking the tunnels of Wright State, and I told Nathan years and years ago, 
He who's faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. You think that job of raking the church leaves or whatever is not that important? You're very wrong. You know, I, I don't build on guys that, uh, that miss too many meetings or that, you know, that, I, that aren't that reliable. Faithful means reliable. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Most people who cheat start by cheating. Do you know that um, couples who engage in premarital sexual activity are 85% more likely to get divorced? Do you know why? It's a a no-brainer if you think it through. Because if protecting sex by a covenant that you, that you affirmed before God in the presence of his people as his witnesses, if, you, if that's not important to you before you're married, it won't be important to you later after you're married. And what you know what? The thing I was saying to some guys recently is you can't do this Christian life without working with the, other, with the opposite sex. You know, whether it's at your place of business or in discipleship campaigns or whatever, you're going to work with p- people of the opposite sex. And if, if saving sex for, for marriage because of the... Why, why would you save sex? for? Is there something magic about the day after the wedding? You bet. You know what's magic about it? Is that the, the, the pastor and... Your, your bridal party and the congregation stand in the place of God's representatives. And it's a covenant ceremony. And it turns it from sex outside of that covenant is one of the most destructive things on the planet. Sex inside that covenant is one of the best things on the planet. One of the things I always start with if I'm talking to a couple about their marriage is how's your physical relationship? Couples that engage in premarital sexual activity are 85% more likely to get divorced. And there's lots of studies that back that up, by the way. That's not a statistic I took out of the air. There's a book I highly recommend called The Case Against Divorce by a Christian psychologist lady named Diane Medved. I would encourage you to consider reading it. Now, in 1 Corinthians 16, 16, the last verse we'll do on helps today, Paul, well, I lied. I'm going to do more than one more verse. Paul urges us to be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the works and labors. There's many times in this church where I say, other people tell me what to do because they were put in charge of that. Right? In 1 Corinthians 15, 46, maybe this will be the last verse. A very, very important verse. First the natural, then the spiritual. If you can't be faithful about mowing lawns, you'll never have any scriptural insight. 
if you don't handle your money faithfully and if you don't pursue your career diligently, and then you'll never have any insight into God's heart or Scripture. All of the insights that God gives about how to be fruitful in his kingdom come about by being faithful in natural things, including work, uh, managing your money, saving, investing, all that kind of stuff, all adds up into depth of spiritual insight. God will not, and you can know a thousand Bible verses, you can know 5,000 Bible verses, God will not allow you to have deep insight into the things that really make for Christian fruitfulness if you're not first faithful in natural things, including your job. You know, it's, it's amazing how many uh, businessmen I've known over the years, and because I finance small businesses, uh, and did that for what, 20 years, I guess, I don't really do it anymore. But I learned a lot about business by financing businesses, and, and I learned that most people in our culture don't want Christian workers because they think Christians are going to be the worst workers because they're going to be talking about Jesus when they should be working and so forth. You know what? Don't witness on your employer's time, especially if you get paid by the hour. Make an appointment to tell them about Jesus later. Seriously. So anyway, that's enough for today. Let's get John, John Gray up here. But I really, faithful in little, faithful in much. Faithful in that which is another. One of, one of my secrets, to be honest, is I perceive myself as still under authority to the very guys who taught me, trained me, and sent me. even though in many cases that was 40 years ago, being faithful to what they taught me is still something I think about every day. I, you know, God entrusted certain things to us through a great line of giants, and we are under their authority. And it's, it's not our gospel. And guess what? This isn't Grace Christian Fellowship, our church. It doesn't belong to the elders, to the leadership team. It belongs to Jesus. And every, the people in it belong to Jesus. And so when, when, I, when I meet with people, I'm in fear and trembling that I represent Jesus well. Like, I, I will often say, if I'm not sure, I will tell you I'm not sure. Because I'm not going to tell you something sure if I'm not sure. Because you belong to Jesus. And I'm going to have to answer to Jesus in terms of what advice I give you. So it better be right. Let's get John Gray up here.